Welcome back, Dreadfuls! You're listening to another episode of Left 4 Dread, the horror podcast for everyone, from newbies to fanatics. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm one of your other hosts, Count Chris Kula. Oh, Jesus. If you can't tell by that <laughs> intro. <laughs> Today we're talking about vampires! Yay! Yay! Vampires! The vampire, the Nosferatu... The living dead. Literally, if I could be any supernatural being, it would be a vampire. Because blood just tastes like copper. It doesn't bother me. Mm, is that is that the only reason why? Eternal youth? You get to, like, turn it to mist? Control creatures? Well, to, okay, so here's the thing. is, And we're going to get into this. It depends on which iteration of mythos you're talking about. Because not every vampire can turn into bat or mist. Some of them sparkle, as we have seen. So, <laughs> we're not going to get into a debate about Twilight on this episode because we didn't watch Twilight. However, no Twilight vampires. It's mostly to do with the not dying and the eternal youth part that I would really just. And, and a little bit, little bit of damnation, but that's okay. Can you, could you live with that? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think there isn't, there isn't such a thing as inherently good people we're all fucked on some level in one way or another whether it's within ourselves or we do things to other people like there is no such thing as the perfect human you don't exist like i don't care how many saints the catholic church says they have like sorry have you read the requirements to be a saint there's no way that's a real thing so we're all inherently screwed up people, so I can... Hey, Dreadfuls, we're starting off this episode with a healthy dose of nihilism. <laughs> but I that being it. said, yeah, I can deal with the, just a wee bit of damnation in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> Very good. Uh, but yeah, so today we are reviewing two, uh, I guess, critically claimed re- true classics of vampire cinema i mean one we have like the og of the og um nosferatu um and uh uh, coppola's dracula or bram stoker's dracula i'm sorry from 1996 um and nosferatu uh i believe that was 19 22 yeah and the director oh gosh um Directed by F.W. Murnau. Um, I apologize for possibly butching that director. Um, and this is really interesting. So um, Nosferatu, fun fact, was produced by Prana Film. And apparently Prana Film was supposed to be this production company devoted to producing occult and supernatural films. But... And apparently never really got took off because um, Nosferatu was was the one and only film that it could produce because uh, uh, they got in really big trouble with the Bram Stoker estate because copyright infringement. So yeah, we'll get we'll get a little bit more into that. But this this episode will be so informative because it wasn't so informative for me and for Ryan. So the thing with both of these films is that they are both based they're both adaptations of Bram Stoker's novel to a T with a few minor exceptions here and there as occur with most adaptations the difference between the two of them is that Coppola got permission to make an adaptation of Stoker's novel whereas Murnau directly plagiarized the book and made the movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like, I felt like, I feel like Nosferatu is, like, one of the earliest examples of, of, of fan films. Because, like, he was, so, like, he was so enamored with the source material. And then... He just, he just he's like oh, I'm just gonna make my own, and he did. And obviously, it was it was a it was a passion project. And it's it's crazy to think how close we were to not having like a, a copy of this existing in the present day. Because 
uh things got so heated with the stoker estate because uh not only did they sue Murnau and the production company, uh, Prana, um, they had a court ruling saying that all copies of the film had to be destroyed, um, but a few prints survived, and uh, later it, uh, they were protected and preserved and eventually recirculated. And now it's it's like one of the most influential pieces of cinema out there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's how it sort of gained this cult film aesthetic so prana film spent more money advertising for this movie than they did making it everything that they did for this movie was basically shot on location like they shot this in a castle that had that was located i think in slovakia it was a slovakian castle that had been disintegrating since the 1500s and they used that as part as most of their set along with shots from their own town and stuff like that. So they really hardly spent any money on this movie. And because of that, and because of all of the advertising materials that they created, like down to like treatments on vampirism as like a condition, they spent a ton of money advertising for this movie. And uh, somebody had actually sent... Uh, the widow of Bram Stoker, um, one of the ads, and that's how she found out about it, and that's why they got sued. Although Murnau got a little lazy, and he thought that by making just, like, a few little tweaks with the novel, like, changing the ending, omitting uh, Van Helsing as a character, that he wouldn't get sued... Well, no, because the whole thing was basically the novel. I mean, yeah, the the work still had the same names of every other character, or the major players at least, so, you know. Exactly. So all of the copies, so the court ruling, like you said, was all of the copies of this film had to be burned. And only a, I don't, I think maybe only one or two copies actually survived. And that's, and then they were duplicated. So it was re-released in 1929 in America. And that's how it sort of spread after that. The film was also banned, I think, in Sweden or something like that for about 20 years. There's also a movie with Willem Dafoe that talks about the myth that Max Schreck, the man who played Count Orlok, was actually a vampire in real life, and it talks about, like, a fictionalized version of them filming this movie, which is actually, it was actually pretty funny. I've seen it. But that's not what we're talking about today. I will say that this is going to be a lengthy episode only because there is so much background on both of these movies, starting with part of the reason why Nosferatu was so influential is because it is uh, a German expressionist movie. And this is where I got to dive back into feeling like I was in college again, learning about German expressionist film. German expressionism, and I will be honest with you that Nosferatu is not the most notorious example of German expressionism in film. It's just one example. The best example of German expressionism in film is the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which we will watch because it is an astounding film. So we're going to get there eventually. Um, But that is probably your best example of German expressionism. And why? Because German expressionism was an art form uh, that came around in the 1920s. And it was born out of Germany's isolation that they had in the 1910s. So the whole point of expressionism was that uh, artists and, and filmmakers presented the world that Germans were living in through an extraordinarily subjective and... Uh, distorted perspective to evoke like strong moods and ideas and like really visceral and raw reactions from people so a point or just question um so is german expressionism like a recalibration or like a callback to romantic like the romanticism like 
or is that is this something like it that developed on its own or independently um i mean because romanticism was as much earlier than german expressionism if i'm correct but it sounds to me like they share a lot of similarities so i just want to this is really interesting i, I yeah you're supposed to feel like it was touched by madness almost when you see it or experience okay. it. Uh, a lot, it was, everything is uh, asymmetrical angles and very stark contrasts of dark and light. And plots of expressionist movies were occupied with madness and insanity and identity and stuff like that because it was supposed to be a reflection of how the Germans felt after being isolated. So they were obviously going a little crazy. Um, and it also shows the effects and horrors of war and them going through all of that as well. It's It, it got very political to a point. But if you've... That's why I said we're going to watch the the cabinet of Dr. Caligari eventually because it literally is the best example of German expressionism. Um, down to every, it has everything. It's like looking at a painting. And to be quite honest, there was an expressionist painting that painted the sets to look like that. So each one of those sets is painted by an artist. It's not created, which was sort of the embodiment of expressionism as a movement. But I guess the Sparknotes version of this, <laughs> to try and condense a lot of shit together, is <laughs> it was an artistic genre that originated in Europe in the 1920s and is very broadly defined as the rejection of Western convention and the depiction of reality that is widely distorted for emotional effect. That is the very, very broad definition of expressionism. Um, like I said, expressionists weren't really concerned about creating anything that was very aesthetically pleasing. Yes, it was meant to evoke a powerful emotional response. So you're supposed to look at it and really feel something rather than saying, oh, that's a nice flower they painted or whatever it was. Um, they used a lot of bright clashing colors, uh, flat shapes and very jagged brush strokes, which is why everything looks very angular and distorted. Yeah, well, one of these days we'll we'll do another episode. Maybe we'll focus more on this topic or this kernel of a topic because, like, German expressionism, expressionism um, has a really profound influence on horror film, and it's it's inspired like entire legions, like you know, like Alfred Hitchcock, for example. All the way down to Tim Burton. I mean, it's still, it influenced the entire genre. It was super important, which is, I think, I think, like I said, we will eventually get around to watching and talking about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And that's really where you can explore expressionism a little bit more in depth, because that is the, the pinnacle of expressionism, is that movie. Also, the original showing of this movie was accompanied by a live orchestra, but that original soundtrack was never recorded and has never been reproduced. So you can hear you can hear it with as an, a multitude of different music soundtracks behind it. There isn't just one. I prefer it the way we the way we watched it. I'm whole, I think we saw the same version, but people have seen it with jazz in the background and classical music and uh, everything else under the sun. It is a silent film so that you can put whatever music to it you want. Um, and I do think that that also has the power to change the film a little bit. But uh, yeah, we've never, you will never be able to hear the original accompaniment, like orchestral accompaniment that went with this film in the first time. So, oh, to be a fly on the wall in 1922, just to hear what that would sound like. That's so sad. So wait, so what? What? What was the recording that we heard in the movie? Was that how? Is that was that the music used in like the nineteen twenty nine U.S. version or? I th I believe so. Um, this film has also been copied over several times with multitude of different music, so that could be from anywhere. But I do think it might have been from the 1929 version 
And that's what we that's what okay. we hear today. Um, I'm reading this up here. The original score was composed by Hans Erdmann, um, but the, most of the original music was lost during a screening of the film. Um, and what remains was a reconstitution of the score. So it's it's a it's a reimagining, but it's not the true original. Okay, that makes sense. Also, that's really sad. So. Like Chris said earlier, Prana Films as a studio was sort of created with this goal in mind to create supernatural and occult films. Uh, unfortunately, because of the way they handled Nosferatu, it was their one and only film. And then they had a shutdown because they declared bankruptcy in an effort to dodge their copyright infringement. <laughs> and it obviously didn't work because they still went bankrupt and they still shut down. <laughs> No, it's okay. It's okay. They 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 went. It's like you know what? We're just gonna do some viral guerrilla marketing, and then and then they they got the masses to advertise and distribute. So it, it you know they were the first. Well, not maybe not the first, but they were an early example of cult films. And yeah, so they were they were ahead of their time and on many fronts. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because. Nosferatu was ahead of its time for multiple reasons, one of which being the special effects that they actually used in this movie. You'd never seen it before. You've seen it a million times after, but this was the first time they ever saw something like this. So when I say special effects, I'm specifically talking about the stop motion effects that they used in this movie. They used it to make the ob to make objects look like they were moving by themselves. They used double exposure to create the illusion of Count Orlock vanishing on his own and appearing transparent or translucent yes and him rising out of the coffin um when they made the coffin lid levitate when he used magic to open up the trap door in the ship all of that was completely groundbreaking for the time period that this movie was coming out in so it really has done a lot for film in general i mean for our reasons it's specifically to horror movies um especially the way they dealt with the count in this as opposed to the way Coppola de uh, dealt with the count in this. It really set a precedent for the entire genre and the vampire genre in general. So this, this film really has a lot of shit in it. <laughs> it's, it really is. There's a reason why they call it a classic. And I do think that everyone should see this at least once in your life. And if you say that you're unimpressed with it, you're really not looking at it for what it should be looked at. I'm sorry. Um, you, you cannot like vampire movies. That's totally fine. But you should at least be able to acknowledge what this film did for the genre. One of the biggest differences between these two films is the way they portray Dracula. One of them is this very suave aristocrat... And the other one looks like a rat. His very rodent-like features. A comparison has been made that he was intended to look like a rat because rats were also responsible for spreading the plague across Europe. Yeah, this bestial man named Count Orlock who just looks like, just looks decrepit and dis disfigured and ugly any way you slice it. Yeah, um, I will say that the the way Orlock moves, you want to talk about something that defined a, a generation. Uh, the way he moves in this movie has been passed down from to other horror films, from Frankenstein with the way he walks to Michael Myers in Halloween. That right there is also something that they took care of for the rest of, you know, for the rest of film. I mean... Film is also film doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists within a cross cross nexus of like politics and art and history and social uh, social conditions and yeah. So now, do you want to hear what Roger Ebert had to say about Nosferatu? Uh, sure. He said, "Quote." Here's the story of Dracula before it was buried alive in cliches, jokes, TV skits, cartoons, and more than 30 other films. The film is in awe of its material. It seems to really believe in vampires. 
Is Murnau's Nosferatu scary in the modern sense? Not for me. I admire it more for its artistry and ideas, its atmosphere and images, than for its ability to manipulate my emotions like a skillful, skillful modern horror film. It knows more of the later of the later tricks of the trade, like sudden threats that pop in from the side of the screen. But Nosferatu remains effective. It doesn't scare us, but it haunts us. And with that lovely quote, let's get into how Chris felt about Nosferatu, because clearly I have a lady boner for this movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. Like, so I've only I've only actually seen bits and pieces of Nosferatu. This is my first time actually seeing it in full. Um, and I know I picked up, I mean, I, I obviously, I know how important Nosferatu was, um, because, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a huge horror buff and I love vampires and it was really great seeing one of the progenitors of, of that aspect of, of cinema. Um, and just looking with a measured eye, like, just like for one example, like seeing the way, um, Matt, Max Strex uh orlock just moved and carried himself and the way he like gestured with his hands and his claws and like it's like wow you can really see that cinematic genetic legacy like throughout films and it's just it was like really it was a really uh exciting and um experience to watch and um and then like we are serious fans of like practical effects and like the the art of filmmaking on this podcast i mean if you listen to us before you know ryan and i could talk about practical effects all day and the fact that like this movie in the 1920s pioneered so many crazy film techniques like like so many i like really iconic film techniques uh at a time where um not many or like or maybe not at all uh, other filmmakers were doing this stuff which is so fascinating and like i'm not a filmmaker and i'm the type of person who always always wonders like how did they do that and like the fact that you had these the super skilled um filmmakers who didn't have access to uh the the latest and greatest technology and like a CGI, all this other new fangled jazz we have today, but like they used what they had and just pushed the envelope of his potential. Um, like it was, that was, it was like, it, it was a really insightful experience. Um, yeah. And I, I think from a narrative standpoint, um, Brent Stoker's Dracula is like one of my favorite books of all time. Um, and I've I found it interesting, like for the for most in part the the book or I'm sorry the the movie uh, is largely faithful to the to the book. Uh, I mean um, to a fall. I mean that's how that's how Prana died. But like any adaptation, uh, especially like an adaptation made out of love, out of fandom, because like uh, Prana films were obviously really enamored with. Um, the story. Uh, they took some liberties and they they did some tweaks, um, which I think just added to the 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 rich tapestry of you know of the lore of of, of the 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 zeitgeist of the vampire myth. Like for example, um, one major difference that um, Murnau's uh, Nosferatu added to the mythos is that um they introduced the idea that um uh the like the vampires are out can be outright killed um with sunlight and uh, in the original books or the original book um it was established that the dracula was only weakened by sunlight but he could still operate around but this introduced the idea where like outright uh, a vampire can be completely destroyed uh, in sunlight, and that's something you see a lot 
in vampire fiction nowadays. Well, that cliche is directly traced to this movie. It's this movie's fault that you even have that. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that's like a really that's a really cool. I mean, it, uh, the this movie got its licks, but like it established a legacy in more than one. And I, I think it's so cool that the fact that it just created an, an entire like it, it created a element of vampirism that's now considered or widely considered as canon it's like that's so cool even so um yeah i i really enjoyed this film and i i felt like i i didn't get as much out of it as ryan did not 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 that i didn't like the film not not at all Uh, it's just because i don't have this uh, established background in in like film history and cinema cinematic history so there are things that i i felt like on a second rewatch now that we're talking more about the roots of german expressionism and um that that sort of um i guess that perspective that informs the film like now i'm looking at a new light i that's it's definitely it's really fascinating. And now that I would I would like to rewatch it again and um, watch it again with that new understanding. But in general, I love this film. This film is great, uh, and I just yeah, it's just it's, it, it's just it makes me wonder like how like what geniuses they were, um, and I I just can you imagine like an alternate reality where Prana Films just continue making occult films like. What if the, I would love to see like a Prada film production of Mary Sherry, Mary Sherry's uh, Frankenstein, or maybe they decided to take on take on some works of like H.P. Lovecraft or something like that. Because that would be so cool. We could have had an entire library of Lovecraftian movies. Hell, the Universal Monsters might not even have become a thing. There's no way of really knowing. Um, would the Creature from the Black Lagoon have even been made? There's a whole, there's a whole, I mean, you could go off on a theory about multiverses here and say, sure, maybe there is a universe where Prana Film didn't get shut down and they have this whole line of films, but there's no way of really knowing. But maybe we wouldn't have had the iconic monsters that we do with the people that played them if Prana Films had survived. Or maybe it would have been worse, better, who's to say? Because... Lon Chaney as the Wolfman is an iconic thing to watch. It is a thing of beauty. So I, I like, I say that, I hesitate to say that because the Universal Monsters were, I grew up on that. I think that was my first werewolf movie was Lon Chaney and the Wolfman. And then I watched Abbott and Costello. (laughs) (laughs) My father is a really big fan of Abbott and Costello, so I grew up on that too. So it was that, Abbott Costello, and then Scooby-Doo. So, you know, it's just, it's all over the place. It all works. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did have a lot of fun sort of re-watching this movie and diving back into all of this because when I was in college, I took film and I got to watch things that I never really got to think about uh, between German Expressionism, French New Wave, Middle Eastern Cinema... Um, Japanese I mean I'll just say Asian film I did all of that too not necessarily horror movies but the things that were sort of representative that of defining that genre and what made them so I saw the cabinet of Dr. Caligari while I was in school so you know I kind of got spoiled in that sense that I was exposed to that so going when I when we planned out this episode and I was like, Oh, I get to like relearn about German expressionism again. I felt like I was back in film school. (laughs) So it was a little fun (laughs) for me, but you know, it's good. It's great. I will say a not Debbie Downer of a fun fact that even I, I didn't know this either. So I just found this out in sort of reading up Nosferatu is the subject of a SpongeBob SquarePants gag. I love this gag. I don't watch SpongeBob SquarePants, so. Oh, so you didn't know about this? I did not know. I, I had no okay, idea. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So um, 
so there's a SpongeBob gag. Um, so there's an episode of SpongeBob called um, The Graveyard Shift. Yeah. So this is where um, Mr. Krabs, um, being the ever, um, being like the the entrepreneurial businessman that he is, uh, decides to make the Krusty Krab a 24-hour uh, restaurant. So it's open all the time. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very terrible idea. Um, and Sp- Squidward and SpongeBob are forced to work 24 hours a day. Um, and to pass the time during the graveyard shift, um, uh, Squidward tells SpongeBob a scary story just to make fun of him, to scare him. And throughout the course of the night, like weird, weird events start happening at the restaurant. Like, um, like the lights start flicking on and off and, um, uh, the SpongeBob and Squidward led to believe that there's like a serial killer, like a frequent thing in the restaurant. Um, and at the end, they it was all farce, um, and they're wondering the, the and they're all it was all farce, and they were actually wondering like, hey, like what what's what was making all the lights flicker on and off, and just like out of the blue, it was completely random, and it was probably uh, more so as a not at a wink to older fans of um spongebob or just something for the parents or grandparents to laugh at um so it cuts after they ask that question they cut to a shot of max shrek's count orlock um and uh he was the one flickering uh, flicking the light switch on and off and then it ends with squidward and spongebob saying oh nosferatu and then the the count orlock kind of like grins awkwardly and then just it's like and then it cuts the black um like i've always like i was always so perplexed like what was there some deeper meaning behind steven hillenberg like like inserting this bit of the super uh, iconic German expressionist film into the end of the SpongeBob, and I like to think that um, it there was no reason just for like just random kicks and giggles, but it's just so quirky and left field. It's something that you won't really expect, and I just it may I don't know, maybe maybe this episode is like some meta commentary on German expressionism and. <laughs> maybe we need to watch it to investigate further but yeah it's just, i think that's probably one of the probably one of the most um like humorous and like just weird off ball uh, oddball references to the film out there but it's so charming i i love that i love that reference i love that okay so ready for this Jay Lender, who I guess is the... Oh, he's one of the writers on Spongebob. He said, From a technical standpoint, the most difficult aspect of this joke was finding a usable image of Max Shrek in full vampire regalia. I drove all over town looking for books with scannable pictures of Count Orlock. I searched what little there was of the web back then, says Lender. Hours and hours of my life were spent over four seconds of screen time because it made me laugh. That's why it's in there. Just because it made him laugh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but like, That's again, great. going back to the fact that if this film had like not been made and truly had been destroyed the way the Widow Stoker would have wanted... You never would have had that. Never would have had Willem Dafoe in a movie. This is true. Willem Dafoe. You know, <laughs> dealing with all that. Like, you ne- I, you've never... I mean, to be fair, but by degree, Twilight probably never would have come to this green, which we could have done without, because, let's face it, I don't want my vampire sparkly. But how much of Anne Rice's vampires would have become iconic without Nosferatu? Because, like Nosferatu, they take... The sunlight cliche, and that's where hers sort of stem from. They can't go out into sunlight either. They crumble up and die. Uh, I want your hot take. So I know like on its own, Bronze Stoker's Dracula was really, really popular. Um, 
but do you think because of Nosferatu and like the weird, crazy roller coaster ride of its production and legacy, um, do you think Bram Stoker's Dracula would have been as big of a worldwide phenomenon as it is with that uh, without? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering. Be only only because only because uh, Coppola was so influenced by the novel from such a young age. He read it when he was probably way too young, kind of like Stephen King in that sense. Like started reading all this stuff when he was probably far too young for it. Um, and the novel made such an impact on him that I think he would have been destined to make this movie at some point in his life, regardless. But. It's only because Nosfer- I feel like Nosferatu was made first and fully plagiarized that we even can make those comparisons. But I do think he would have. I, I do think that Bram Stoker's Dracula was going to get made regardless. I really do. Um, especially considering the fact that uh, Winona Ryder is responsible for the, the movie being made by Coppola. She was the one that handed him the script and was like, here, you do it. And then the film got made. So it was sort of her fault <laughs> that any of this was going to happen. So I, I feel like, yes, a multitude of things need to fall into place for something like that to happen. But when something has a profound impact on your life and you become an author, you become a filmmaker or game developer, whatever it is, the thing that impacts your life like that will eventually come up and you'll accomplish it. He really... Truly did a fantastic job on that movie. Yeah! <laughs> Whereas Murnau was just like, I love this book. I'm just going to do it because I'm a fan. And I don't want to ask for permission. I guess he really thought that it was better to ask forgiveness than permission. He is, he's got moxie. <laughs> he's got moxie. He does. He had moxie. It was just plagiarized moxie. Oh, <laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> But we, I mean, like what, uh, what's it, like 120 years later, we're still talking about him, so. Oh, 100 years later. Well, I can't do I math. I can't do math either, it's all right. <laughs> I didn't major in math. I majored in yeah, film. Yeah, we majored in I film. I majored in film. <laughs> <laughs> so much more practical and useful, yeah. <laughs> Just quick other anecdotes, and then we can move on to Coppola's Dracula. I think I told you that more money was spent on advertising for this movie than actually making it. Which is crazy to think about because that's like a standard practice in Hollywood. Like just like the just like the advertising arm and or wing of a of a making a movie in Hollywood. Just yeah, it's it's so true. There was an ad campaign that was placed in issue twenty one of a German film magazine with. Are you ready for this? A summary. Mm-hmm. A, I think a fully laid out scene from the movie. Work photographs. Production reports. And essays which included a treatment on vampirism. All as part of a giant ad campaign for this one movie. This sounds like a, like an entire zine. Just, just that's awesome. That is so cool. And that's... That's what they did for the movie. They were just, they, like I said, they used everything that they had set wise in order to film it. But this was, you know, what they did. So I think of, I love listening to other people's critiques of this movie because of how old it is. So we heard Roger Ebert's Rotten Tomatoes says one of the silent era's most influential masterpieces, Nosferatu's eerie gothic feel and chilling performance from Max Schreck as the vampire set the template for the horror films that followed. Could not be more true. Hmm. I'm curious, were there any... Negative ones? Super negative ones? Yeah. Like, what was, what's the worst review... Well, this is this is the one that I found. I don't know if it's the worst one. So in March 6, 1922, uh, a f- the film... Oh, I don't speak German, so I'm not even going to try to say that. But it sounds like film, like career, film career or something like that. 
said that the vampire appeared too corporeal and Britley lit for it to be genuinely scary. Which, Roger, to be fair, Roger Ebert said it wasn't a scary movie, but it haunts you. So, but that still gives it horrific praise in the best mm. sense possible. So, he, this person obviously didn't think that this movie was genuinely scary. Probably thought it was a farce and, well, joke's on you, tough guy. It became a cult classic. So with that, we're going to go on to probably one of the most well-known, simultaneously brilliantly done adaptations and most, well, like, love-to-hate movies. Really? I didn't know. There's only one part of this movie that people actually hate. Yeah. Ke- Keanu Reeves. Come on. Okay, okay. L- let me, full, full disclaimer... I love Keanu Reeves. I love I love him so much. But he he was this is not his A game. And I you know now he has like a second run of size. Now he's off doing like John Wick and, and now he's gonna do like Bill and Ted number three. So he, he's he's like he's he's refined his craft. He's like but this movie like in this in this like this movie is stacked with talent on top of talent in talent. Like you got you got Francis Ford Coppola on deck, and then you got Gary Oldman as Dracula. You got uh, Winona Ryder as Mina Harker, and then you got Anthony freaking Hopkins as Van as Abraham Van Helsing, and then you got Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker, and who you know like uh, the, you hear this common criticism of. Keanu Reeves, especially in some of his earlier films, where like you don't, he doesn't have like he's like a very flat affect, is like not low emotional range. You, this is more apparent um, in this film. Plus, he he tries to do uh, a British accent, and it's like when he when he talks, like I can't. It's like it's like. He's pl- he's playing his character from Bill and Ted, trying to mimic a, a British accent, but like with less enthusiasm. That's like the only way I could describe it. And like it's, yeah, it took me a little bit back. But like, I don't think I I, th- I think later in the third act, I think his acting becomes more more, more palatable and like he, there's like more raw emotion out of it. Um, but. From the majority of the film, like it's just it it's it was it was the it was like the weakest link, um, and also it was it was kind of weird for a second because like there was like an entire part in the movie, like, at least like an entire act where like Keanu Reeves was just not there, and that's I mean that's true because he was stuck in Dracula's castle, but like it was it was like the middle of the movie kind of just like ignored Keanu Reeves just for just for a bit, but. I don't know. I think, it, regardless of like Keanu Reeves, his performance, you know, he tried his best. That's you know, I, I, or I hope he tried his best because I love the guy. Do you want to hear what Francis has to say about it? Oh no, <laughs> no! Don't do it to Neo. Don't do it to John Wick. This is good. I found an article where someone from E Entertainment Weekly, EW, sat down with the director, and started asking him questions about Dracula. And Keanu gets brought up in the interview. So I'm going to quote this verbatim. Because even I, like, I was like, oh, oh, it's not bad. It's actually wonderful. So Keanu Reeves was very criticized for his performance. Do you feel responsible for that? First of all, asking a couple of that to his face. This guy's got balls. Uh, just not even, not even, like, massaging the, the feels. Like, nope. Nope. Mm, nope. So, Coppola says, We knew that it was tough for him to affect an English accent. He tried so hard. That was the problem, actually. He wanted to do it perfectly, and in trying to do it, it, trying to do it perfectly, it came off as stilted. I tried to get him to just relax with it and not do it so fastidiously. So maybe I wasn't as critical of him, but that's because I like him personally so much. To this day, he's a prince in my eyes. 
The follow-up to that was, I think he's spoken out about being burnt out from so much work when he arrived on the set. Perhaps. And I know that the critics gave him trouble about the accent. But of all the young people I've met in the film industry, he's so endearing and sincere and a good person and a generous person. And I'm glad I came to know that. He's the nicest person you'll ever want to meet. So even the director acknowledges this, his accent was crap. And he's like, it doesn't even matter because he just tried too hard. I mean, I, I, I really have to admire him for that though. It like, it like tugged on my heartstrings. I was like, now I can't shit on this anymore, even though it was my favorite thing to do. Nah, you can't do the Keanu. Keanu's too good. He's, he's, he's too good of a guy. He's the shining beacon in Hollywood. He is, he, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, I know I'm a little bit biased, but he tried his best. And I, I feel like. I feel like, like, I mean, one, you have you have this legendary director you're working under, and then you're also working outside. Uh, this is really, really early into Keanu Reeves' career uh, as well, and he's working alongside Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, and yeah, I imagine that's you know when you're when you're in the presence of such acting pedigree, um, you know, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed or feel overshadowed and feel like the mounting pressure so so that just it's like a feedback loop it's like oh god and so yeah i have to try my best and then it doesn't it doesn't quite make it um as naturally to the to the camera to the to the final cut uh i don't know you counters aside this movie is so fantastic i love it you want to tug on some practical effect heartstrings uh yeah all right so in the same article, they're asking about the special effects for the movie. That's what got you thinking about shooting the special effects almost like live magic trips. Tricks, excuse me. In the script, there were a million effects, but I wanted to do them all live. Nothing in post-production, do them all on camera. I couldn't get anyone to take me seriously, so I fired the special effects department. The entire department! And hired, and hired my young son, Roman, who is an enthusiast about magic. How did you and Roman go about it? There's one scene where this fantastic green mist comes through a window. That was double exposed. The mist was shot as an element by itself. You photograph a scene and then you make good notes and you put it in the refrigerator and a week later you take the film out and then put it in the camera and re-photograph the next element. In some cases, we passed the film through the camera three or four times before it was developed. It's very difficult, but the photography you get is very beautiful. And he even says it's just like the film tricks that they used in the silent era. Absolutely friggin' correct. We just went over this with Murnau. I mean, clearly, again, way ahead of his time, all the way to the point where Francis Ford Coppola used the same thing in this movie. I have a... I have a um, a production point that I, I'm a really big fan of. Um, I just love how cavalier Coppola was about production. Like like that was what the like Ryan's example is definitely a a great example of that. Like my favorite example is what was like he was like fuck all spare no expense. I want all the budget to be spent on costumes, and that's what he did. Like so so he 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 considered the the costuming. Like to be like the jewels of the feature. Like he literally did not spare any expense. Yeah, he wanted the costumes to be the stars. They yeah, the costume department had so much fun. They had so much liberty. Like like from everything from like um, Gary like Gary Oldman's uh, what's it called his his suit of armor uh, to the the red cloak he had like five different looks in this movie the bat the near death dracula the prince the um beast man thing and then the and then the old count d this dracula was just like just voguing it's just like showing off all his threads it was beautiful i love it and i just love the the attitude of the I guess like the 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 proving grounds that he set upon his costume de designers, he was basically saying, "Make me something weird." And the uh, the artists were or the the costumers were like, "Okay, weird doesn't mean we by weird he means let's just try anything, see what sticks." And 
Um, and he would he would say, quote, um, give me something that either comes from the research or that comes from my own nightmares. Um, I gave them paintings, I gave them drawings, I talked to I talked to them about how I thought the imagery could work. So he really gave them free reign and the end result like this I, I definitely going back to um, German expressionism and other you know I guess types of aesthetics and art forms like surrealism and stuff um, you know definitely some gothic horror some romanticism like it's you had this pastiche of wild and crazy aesthetics all over the place and they were just so intricately designed and so elegant yet so over the top ostentatious and ornate it was just it was this beautiful combination of all the things in this and it's it just managed to work despite all those different pulls and pull uh, pulls and pushes in different directions and tones i loved it, it was so good what i also really i mean i love like uh even counter reeves like i i love like everyone's take on the character and i I I was most surprised about Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing because he was I didn't expect him to be such a source of quirky like um, I guess comedy relief because like how they played uh, Anthony Hopkins it seemed at one point he was like stoic but like this definitely was more of the case later. In the, in the second and third acts of the movie where he was this sort of like crazed deranged savant like this this mad genius where he you know you start well kind of like dr seward his exactly protege. the guy is addicted to morphine but he happens to be a brilliant psychiatrist yeah, exactly. for the time i'm i'm gonna say mm-hmm. for the time like, like there was this, there's these scenes where it's like, aha, Dracula, my sworn enemy, and he starts laughing like a madman. It's like, but I can't fight evil on an empty stomach. Quick, feed me. It's like Anthony Hopkins, you're killing, you're chewing the scenery. I love you. This is so good. <laughs> I think my favorite part to laugh of of that whole thing is when they're eating, and she says, "Was Lucy in pain?" And she goes, "Yeah, she was in pain, but then we cut off." <laughs> We drove a stake through her heart and cut off her head. Now she's fine. <laughs> and then, like, then he continues. Then he pops something in his mouth like Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, all Savage. while he's like cutting this rump roast and he's eating and very just nonchalant about the whole thing. I honestly, even Keanu Reeves' horrific accent aside, there is literally no like a more perfect cast that could have done this movie. Oh, so good. I. I love this. This, yeah, this, this just this. I th- I think this is like the perfect movie. Like even again, Keanu Reeves aside, I think this is still a perfect movie. And I, I don't even see. I think I think part of the reason why his acting is so bad and rigid was because he was so in his head about the accent that it really just affected his entire performance. And it's it's not good, Chris. It's it's not good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, I th- I felt like I, I I generally feel like near the end of the movie, like it his acting wasn't jarring. Um, I guess like I I feel like there was a, enough moving parts that he was that were uh, acting alongside that you didn't have time to like to focus and hone in on like his performance, and there was a lot more action. I felt like also as a character at least in the narrative arc he just became more proactive and more of a badass and like and i i think that's that's keanu reeves and like his natural element just like just be like really be part of the action and um so i i towards the end like it did like d- definitely in, like the first ad it was very jarring um but i felt like towards the end it, it didn't like the, the sting wasn't as severe um, and I think it just it pulled together well. He tried too hard. Let's just let's just side okay. he, with the he's director. Tried. He's tried. I I can't. He tried I can't too tried hard. I mean, all in all, <laughs> I honestly couldn't think of two better movies to talk about on 
this show because they are both the best adaptations of the novel. And they, I mean, without even really realizing it, um, Murnau, like, set, his film set the precedent for the entire genre, whether we're talking about horror or vampires or anything. It, they did something remarkable with that movie. And it has clearly influenced entire generations of directors and filmmakers. And I don't know if there are that many films out there that can actually say that. For horror, not film in general for horror. I don't know if there are, I'm, I'm trying to get real, I don't want anybody to at me and like get upset. I'm saying for horror, I don't know if there are that many films that you can actually say that. I no, it's no, it's I, I I agree. It's 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 it stands pretty pretty high up there, um, and with Coppola's Dracula, I mean I can't, I mean I can't really think of any other movie that's so quintessentially captures like the 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 spirit and the the energies and the like both like. Bram Stoker and like and like the whole German expressionist, like it's like a neo expressionist feel. Because like I'm telling you, oh my gosh, this movie, like watching this movie is like going through like a mix of a fever dream and an acid trip. Because like it's so like just visually alone, it's like it's so jarring and ethereal and, and like otherworldly, and it's just like it and like it enthralls you and like. It was, it was, I was like, this is, I was enjoying myself so much because it was just so wild and experimental and, and then Coppola just tried every single trick in the book, like, and it was just, it made for like, it was never, there was never a boring point in this movie and it always kept me guessing and yeah, it was just, oh, it was such a, it was such a delight. I will always revisit Nosferatu whenever i possibly can i think it also helps uh if you're interested in watching this movie if you have shutter that helps because that's where i watched it um thank you shutter for keeping the classics alive they also have uh nosferatu symphony of the vampire is that what it's called no there was another one that's on there too if you look and i think that one was another one that was made Oh, it's called, no, Symphony of the Vampire was the one from 1922. The other one that they have on to is called Nosferatu the Vampire from 1979. That's the other one that they have. Um, I'm curious, I'm curious, so, to get your opinion, like, like, obviously we, we love Nosferatu and Coppola's Dracula, um, but what other, I guess, I mean, obviously, there's so many vampire films out there, but what direct adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula in particular are like really no why? Like one one that comes to mind is um, uh, the 1958 Dracula movie with uh, legendary actor Christopher Lee starring in it. Um, uh, also, um, Peter Cushing as Doctor uh, as Van Helsing. Dracula from 1931, mm, the Lugosi. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. Uh, but yeah, what other ones like come to mind? Uh, that... Count Dracula, 1970. There's, there was another one in 1974 called Bram Stoker's Dracula. There's, uh, there's Blackula. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're all they're all adaptations. I think there was another one. I think there was Billy Billy the Kid and, and Dracula is another one. Abbott and Costello. Uh, I think Dracula makes an appearance, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So there have been a lot of Dracula movies in existence, and. I wouldn't mind if that's a thing that we decided to explore different adaptations of Dracula in film or in TV because there was an NBC series um, 
that Van Helsing movie. Oh, with Hugh, Hugh Jackman? With, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Hugh Jackman. That's, uh, you know, that's there. Penny Dreadful. That There's a nod to that in there as well. Um, there are a lot of... I wouldn't mind watching Dracula from 1931 all over again. There's Dracula, Prince of Darkness, The Brides of Dracula, Dracula Untold with Luke Evans. I haven't seen. Oh yeah, that's the that was uh, the attempted reboot of the Universal Monsters franchise, but that kind of died. Then there's Dracula 2000 with Gerard Butler. There's a, a the horror slash martial arts film called The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. I'm very interested. We forgot the most important one, though. Leslie Nielsen, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there have been, um, there have been a lot of adaptations, and um, maybe this is where we decide that we do a Universal Monster segment where we start looking at that little niche of horror movies and or maybe we do christopher lee and see how he did it i would love to do like one of my all-time favorite like dracula and well i mean it's very very loosely based on dracula but it still has some genetic lineage um there's a really popular horror anime and manga series called helsing and you might have seen it before. I've never seen that, but I would watch that. Oh my god, it's so good. Uh, I love it. Okay. I mean, I know. I I feel like I, I'm gonna get you to like watch more anime. So All right, like, let's do it. We need to watch. Let's Helsing. do it. Helsing is okay, so let's good. Let's do it. It is so bloody. It is so over the top. Okay. I, love I think that's on Hulu, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Great. it's on Hulu. Let's do it. Um, I think. I think that's... Do you have any last thoughts about our Dracula extravaganza? Vampires were always... I fell in love with vampires like at a very early age. And I love watching different iterations of Dracula or just vampires in general come to life on screen. What was your first, first uh, vampire interaction in terms of fiction and stuff? Bella Lugosi. Yeah, Bela Lugosi. Because I remember that line that he says, children of the night, what sweet music they make when the wolves are howling. That line haunted my dreams for like months until I started finding all these other different adaptations until finally I saw Coppola's. What was yours? I had to be okay. So I feel like I was a, a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, I, I mean, I, I have like vague memories like of seeing like, um, like Christopher Lee vampire. The, the I mean Christopher Lee's Dracula like on TV. I think like the one that I that had like a super big profound effect on me like and um was when i was a freshman in high school and i watched like this super critically acclaimed anime movie and this is something i I also highly recommend if you want to uh we're gonna fall down this rabbit hole it's called uh vampire hunter d bloodlust so um vampire hunter d is a series of um it's like a giant franchise it started off as a bunch of novels and like like and like these really ethereal, really cool illustrated paintings. And then it was later adapted to um, a series of movies. So Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust is actually the second movie, but it's one of the, it's, uh, it's considered one of the, the best of the, of the franchise. And it involves this mysterious damn fear. So this half human, half vampire, a bounty hunter named D, um, and he and in this movie he um, he's hired by um, like some wealthy baron to rescue his daughter from a vampire uh, who kidnapped his daughter, and it's just it is like 
it is so riveting like it is like this excellent piece of uh tragic horror or or i was uh, yeah tragic horror tragic oh wow it's an excellent piece of like of like this of like love and tragedy and horror but it also mixes in um sci-fi because it takes place in a universe or in a universe where um earth it has been taken over by creatures of the night and the world's casting eternal darkness and um and people are even though there's like futuristic tech people have been kind of cast back to the dark ages or middle age kind of technology and society it's really well done like beautiful animation like oh it's so good I'm going to check that out. That actually sounds awesome. It's very good. So yeah, it's called Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. And we should watch it along with Hellsing. Because it's okay. so good. We'll have, a whole, we'll have a whole anime thing going on. Hell yeah. Which I'm fine with. I actually don't watch enough anime, much less horror anime. And I think that that's also a niche little genre that we can absolutely oh, there's, dive into. There's... Um, there's quite a there's quite a handful of really really awesome hand uh horror anime we can check out. Awesome. So, stay excited. tuned. Stay tuned. We're gonna we're gonna develop that and we're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um. So with that, that's it for our super Bram Stoker extravaganza. Um. Uh. So Ryan, um, if uh, where can all of our dreadfuls uh find us um on the interwebs? Just want to say thank you guys for listening to this blood-loving episode of Left for Dread. Don't forget that you should, please, pretty please with the cherry on top, rate, review, and subscribe because literally everything helps. You can also listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher now every Friday. Ooh. Ooh. Um, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod on Facebook. And guys, check us out on our new website at leftfordread.com. Excellent. It's so good. Thank you, Wix. We'll, we'll all say that every episode. <laughs> Thanks, Wix. We're, just in, we're so in love with our website. And, uh, um, and all any dreadfuls out there who um, have any questions or comments or maybe you want to suggest a, a, a episode topic, uh, feel free to send us an email at leftfordread13 um, at gmail.com. Uh, and with that, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, okay. And as always, stay dreadful. Stay dreadful. <laughs> <laughs>